Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from, some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy, so we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Please be aware, the following episode contains some adult themes. You're listening to Unexplained with me, Richard McLean Smith. We are the Witchcraft, Part 2. That evening, after returning from Robert Rapinski's home, Jack went directly to his study and closed the door behind him. Placing the curious book on his desk, he turns the page and begins to read. When the neophyte enters upon the path of evil, they are but a drunkard groping in the dark. When the neophyte enters upon the path of good, they canst but bear the dazzling brilliance of that light. And on it continues the words glowing like burning coals. Dear children of earth, long have you dwelt in darkness. Quit the night and seek the day. The book's title, Conks on Pax, is thought to derive from the Eleusinian Mysteries, a secret rite of the ancient Greeks, whose purpose, according to Plato, was to lead us back to the principles from which we descended. Although Jack doesn't know this, he feels something of its sentiment emanating from Alistair Crowley's text. 
But what grabs him most, aside from Crowley's belief in the power of magic, is his portrayal of life as a duality of the light and the dark. Not for him the piety and hypocrisy of a morally virtuous vision, but rather something more mutable and honest, something more real. Many hours later, when Jack finally makes his way to bed, there is only one thought in his mind. He must find out more. It won't be long before he does. One afternoon in January 1939, Jack and Helen are entertaining siblings Francis and John Baxter when Francis spies the strange book in Jack's study. Sensing his enthusiasm for its subject matter, the pair invite him to join them at an upcoming event that they think he might find interesting. A few days later, as a pale sun dips below the horizon, Jack makes his way, driving west across the Colorado Bridge toward a small, tree-lined street on the northern fringes of Los Angeles. Eventually pulling up, outside the large three-storey house of 1746 Winona Boulevard. Francis and John are waiting for him outside. A middle-aged woman with short white hair greets them at the door, her gaze intense as she silently inspects the new arrival before heading back inside. John and Francis step in to follow, but Jack hesitates, noticing for the first time how unkempt the front lawn is and the way the paint peels liberally from the outer walls. But with the others waiting for him, he takes a breath and steps into the house. He is led into a large wood-panelled room, the air heavy with the smell of incense, where an odd-looking mix of women and men are assembled. Some turn and nod to Francis and John. Others continue to talk quietly amongst themselves trying hard not to stare at the new arrival. Conspicuous in his sharp suit, vest top, and thin pencil-lime moustache. Jack just has enough time to catch a glimpse of a peculiar, goat-legged statue in the corner of the room when the white-haired woman appears again and asks them all to follow her upstairs. Francis nods for Jack to proceed with the others. Together, they make their way somberly up a large staircase continuing all the way to the top. Stepping through into a dark and cramped attic space, Parsons finds himself in a bizarrely decorated room, like nothing he has ever seen before. At the back, a curtain is opened to reveal an altar of some sort, positioned in front of a black wall and laid over with a crimson cloth, bearing candles and artefacts, including a tablet of hieroglyphics, which Jack recognises from his book. Perhaps strangest of all is the three-stepped dais that leads up to the altar, painted black and white like a chessboard, at the front of which stands an upright coffin. Jack is ushered into one of the two rows of pews positioned to face the altar, and when the last of the group has taken their seat, an ominous hush falls over the room. A man, robed in white and yellow, appears carrying a small book. Pausing in front of the altar, he kisses the book three times and places it open underneath the tablet, before turning to address the congregation. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, he says. Love is the law, love under will, they all reply in perfect unison. Jack 
watches mesmerized as the group rise together, drawing their right hands across their bodies before continuing. I believe in one earth, the mother of us all, and in one womb wherein all are begotten, and wherein they shall rest. Mystery of mystery, in her name Babylon. And I believe in the serpent and the lion. Mystery of mystery, in his name Baphomet. A woman appears, dressed in a robe of white, blue and gold. Holding up a sword, she strikes it toward the coffin, from out of which steps another man, also wearing a white robe and a gold half-crown, its front fashioned into the shape of a serpent. Forty minutes later, with the strange ritual complete, Jack watches intrigued as two by two the members of the group pair off and disappear into the depths of the house. John and Francis reappear soon after, alongside a slight balding man who introduces himself as Wilfred Smith. Only then does Jack realise he is talking to the figure that appeared out of the coffin, who it also transpires is the leader of the group. As Smith explains, the ritual Jack had just observed is known as the Gnostic Mass. The house they are standing in is the Agape Lodge, otherwise known as the US headquarters of a secret society called Ordo Templi Orientis, the Order of the Temple of the East. Established in Germany in the late 19th century by wealthy industrialist Karl Kellner and journalist Theodore Royce, the order had begun life as an advanced theosophic movement, combining the knowledge of Freemasonry with that of another secret order, known as the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light. It is the claim of such esoteric organisations that behind the veil of reality lies a deeper, hidden world that can only be comprehended once a certain degree of knowledge known only to their highest-ranking members, has been learnt. Attainment of these mysteries are said to provide nothing less than the answer to humanity's purpose and ultimate destiny. An understanding of one's place in the cosmos and the power to achieve a complete mastery of the self. Kellner had joined the Freemasons hoping to discover how to access this higher plane, only to find their teachings somewhat lacking. He became convinced that something crucial was missing, some kind of key without which their knowledge was useless. At some point in the 1890s, Kellner claimed to have found it. The key, he said, was sex magic. The performance of sexual acts, either as a magic ritual in itself or in conjunction with a magical rite. With Royce's help, Kellner set about collecting all the secrets of Freemasonry and the Hermetic Brotherhood fusing them together in a series of ten mysteries, also known as degrees, to be used with his new key. When Kellner died in 1905, Royce continued their work and gave the order its present name. Five years later, Royce initiated Alistair Crowley into the order. At first drawn to the OTO as a fellow practitioner of sex magic, Crowley would eventually succeed Royce at the top of the organisation. Back in 1904, Crowley claimed to have received communication from an entity known as Iwas, who told him that he was a messenger for the Egyptian god Horus. He eventually came to believe that many years ago, humans once lived under the feminine spirit of the god Isis, governed by a matriarchy 
had fostered egality and eccentricity. At some point, this had given way to the masculine age of the god Osiris, a patriarchal era of great darkness, hypocrisy and ignorance. As he was informed by Iwas, it was now time to restore the balance. The Aeon of Horus, representing the child of creation and the spirit of rebellion, would deliver that change. In response to this revelation, Crowley developed a philosophy of thought that would enable others to establish the new age of Horus, which he called Thelema, meaning simply will in Greek. When Royce died in 1923, Crowley, having been steadily rising up the ranks of the OTO, became its natural figurehead and promptly converted it to a Thelemic organisation. The Agape Lodge, as Smith went on to explain to Jack, was a church of Thelema. But Parsons hadn't come for the history lesson. He had come for something else. But what about the magic, he asks. Well, says Smith, as the great beast says himself, magic is but the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. But is it real, asks Jack. Oh yes, says Smith, it is very real. Perhaps it was Parsons' rare and refined air that drew Smith so closely to him that evening. Or perhaps it was more the fact that the organisation hadn't had any fresh blood for some time. Either way, it was clear from the outset that there was something special about him. When Parsons left that evening, the group's three senior members gathered by the window to watch him go. Regina Carl, Smith's lover and the woman with the sword, and Jane Wolfe, the woman with white hair, both agreeing with Smith that he would make the perfect addition to the order. Wolfe, who had been a successful silent film actress before devoting her life to the study of Thelema, later wrote to inform Crowley of the A1 man, Crowley-esque in attainment, that had just signed up. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Jack, who had all but given up on the rocketing dream, spent the next few weeks poring over a number of Crowley texts that Smith had sent him, eager to uncover more about how to conduct the magic. Although he wasn't quite sure what to make of Smith himself, his knowledge would be vital if he was going to make it work. Then one morning, in early spring, Jack received a call from Theodore von Kármán. Having run out of funds the previous year, 
It was clear to von Karman that the Galsit research team's only hope was to convince the government that their rockets could be used for military purposes. With the German government now openly arming for war, the United States were keen to keep ahead of the game and despite remaining sceptical, agreed to give the team $1,000 if they could find a way to help bomber planes take off on short runways. Von Karman wanted to know if Jack would be interested in returning. Ed Foreman had already expressed interest, which was all Jack had to hear. Jack and Ed, who had spent the last few months working back at the Halifax Powder Company, quit their jobs immediately and returned to Caltech. For the next few months, the pair, along with Frank Molina, worked tirelessly to come up with a plan. In June, they delivered it to the National Academy of Sciences Air Corps Committee. Their proposal was to strap a series of rockets to the underside of the plane in order to give it a 10-second jet-assisted takeoff, otherwise known as a JATO, enough to half its takeoff distance. The committee, suitably impressed, offered a further $10,000 to continue the work. There was only one problem. What the team hadn't told them was that the current record for such a device was only five seconds. The Suicide Squad were back. The next few months were a blur of sweat and toil under the baking California sun as the team raced to meet the Academy's deadline. 6,000 miles away, in a low-rise, grey stone building, Perched high up in the Bavarian Alps, Adolf Hitler delivers a speech to his military command. I have prepared my death's head formations with orders to kill without pity or mercy all men, women and children of Polish descent or language. Only in this way can we obtain the living space we need. Ten days later, shortly after 4.40am, while citizens of the Polish town of Wielun sleep in their beds, The drone of engines high up in the sky draws near, and soon 29 Stuka planes have materialised from out of the dark and clouds above. And from under their wings, a cascade of small black dots tumble with terminal velocity towards the houses below. Within seconds, the air will shake with fire, thunder and screams. By the evening, 380 bombs have dropped on the town killing 1,200 in total, and the unmentionable odour of death rises high into the September night. The Second World War had begun. Since January, Parsons, although he had only returned to the Agape Lodge a few times, had been digging deeper into Crowley's magic workings, growing closer to the group's leader, Wilfred Smith, in the process. As word of the German army's blitzkrieg through Poland hits the newsstands. It's hard not to think of Crowley's vision of the masculine age of Osiris and what misery and destruction it had wrought. With the team now caught up in a rapidly growing military industry, their work was beginning to face a different level of scrutiny. For the next few months, Parsons, who had always relied on intuition and a large degree of trial and error, continued in vain to find the right explosive mix for a 10-second thrust, but everything he tried ended in disaster. As the money dwindled and the college staff grew tired of his endless explosions, by spring 1940, it was beginning to look like his rocket dream was once again coming to an end. 
realising that time was fast running out, von Kármán and Frank Molina went back to the maths. After months of intense calculation, they finally cracked the problem. And a few weeks after the German army capture France, the team make a successful demonstration to the National Academy, and their funding is duly continued. But now, they want to see it work on a plane. With more money coming in, Caltech agrees to build a four-acre test facility back where it all began on the dust flats of the Arroyo Seco. The team has grown from three to twelve, and a more professional structure has developed, with the 26-year-old Jack being designated the head of solid propellants. Outside of work, Jack is becoming a regular feature at the Agape Lodge. Intrigued by his growing obsession, Helen also begins attending, frequently joining Jack at the Order's regular social events, where guests were encouraged to do whatever they wilt, as per Crowley's teachings. Despite everything that Jack had achieved as a scientist, he would never truly be accepted by the scientific community, and he knew it. Frank Molina, for one, was growing increasingly concerned about him. Unnerved by the way he stockpiled explosives and how he kept them casually distributed outside on his balcony and mixed them alone in his basement. Perhaps Molina envied something in the chaos, how Parsons seemed to get by on instinct alone. But although there was a time and a place for the risk-takers, he thought, when it came down to it, real science was about crunching data and discipline, something Jack had never been cut out for. Though von Kármán remained an enthusiastic supporter, those like Frank and the other Caltech students took umbrage with his often reckless and impatient approach and balked at his lack of formal education. At the lodge, however, rather than being treated as a threat, Jack's rebellious and adventurous spirit was admired. When Jack and Helen are formally initiated in February 1941, the lonely boy who had dreamt only of sending rockets to the moon, who had been bullied mercilessly at school for being nothing but himself, finally feels accepted. Emboldened by his welcome into the lodge, Jack promptly announces that he will give a set of talks at his and Helen's house, inviting all members to attend, as well as a number of the rocket research team, intrigued by the eccentricities of their colleague. For the next few months, Jack spends his days beavering away in his homemade lab or at the Galsit test site, while nights are a whirl of Stravinsky and cocaine, science and mysticism, and of course, Crowley. As Jack's occult knowledge increases, he begins dabbling deeper into the magic, sexual and otherwise. Seances are frequently held in conjunction with the talks, and soon it isn't only his wife that he is performing magic with. In June 1941, Helen leaves Pasadena to take a holiday with her mother Olga and younger sister Nancy. A few weeks later, she returns home to find her other sister, Betty, casually walking around her house, wearing her clothes. Betty is a little shocked by her sister's sudden appearance, having not expected her back until the next day. Nonetheless, the 17-year-old Betty collects herself and, looking her sister in the eye, tells her 
that she is with Jack now. Helen is speechless. As it would transpire, Jack had been growing closer to Betty for some time, cruelly informing Helen shortly after her return that he and her sister were far more sexually compatible and it was only right that they should explore that. Thelema discouraged monogamy and all notions of ownership when it came to relationships, considering such conventions to be unnatural and harmfully restrictive in the journey to realising the true self. There are few conventions, however, that are harder to transcend than those pertaining to affairs of the heart. And though Helen might have understood the principle, putting it into practice was something else entirely. Come August, back at the Galsit rocket range, the JATO rockets are ready for testing. With the first flight test due to take place the following week, pilot Lieutenant Homer Bauschi looks on as a slightly worse-for-wear Parsons rigs up six rockets onto a rack, steps back and fires them up. After a loud roar, the rockets look to be holding when a sudden sputtering is followed by a huge explosion and pieces of casing flying everywhere. Parsons can only look on in dismay as Bauschi's face drains of all its colour. Since missing the deadline is not an option, the team work endlessly to resolve the problem. Some days the jets work, others they don't, and seven days later, Jack still has no idea why. On the day of the test at the Marchfield Air Corps base in Marino Valley, Bauschi sits in the cockpit of a small propeller plane as the team make their final checks on the six rockets strapped underneath, before standing back and hoping for the best. Having failed to find the solution via traditional means, Jack tries something else. A short time after takeoff, Parsons eyes the plane in the sky as it turns back into view and begins to stamp his feet, chanting under his breath, much to the bewilderment of his colleagues. Give me the sign of the open eye and the token erect of thorny thigh and the world of madness and mystery. O Pan, Eo Pan. The words coming from the hymn to Pan, an invocation to the great goat-footed god of fertility and the wild. The team look back up to the sky as a brilliant flash of light it's followed by the jet thrust of six fully functional JATO rockets powering Bausch's plane through the sky for a full ten seconds. It is a reprise of sorts for Parsons' fuel mix. In a week's time, however, they will have to do it all again, but this time directly from the takeoff. Only two days later, another test run on a stationary plane results in a catastrophic explosion. Mercifully, Jack has by now, at least, uncovered the problem. Cracks in the powder mix caused by temperature fluctuations, meaning the rockets have to be used within 24 hours of manufacture or they will malfunction. Over the next two weeks, with Jack manically preparing each rocket and delivering it personally to the test site, the team will successfully use 152 JATO rockets over 60 tests earning them another $100,000 in funding. 
rockets, it seems, are becoming a big business. But without a permanent solution for the temperamental mix, the team know it can't be sustained. And Jack's extracurricular activities are starting to interfere. Early one morning in November, Frank Molina is woken by a phone call from the local police. They are calling to let him know that one of his employees has been taken into custody and will likely be going to jail. A desperate Molina drives immediately to the station and begs the police to keep the incident quiet, worried that they'll lose their funding if anyone finds out. Asking to speak with the employee, he is duly led into a small interview room where a tired and dishevelled-looking man is waiting for him. His name is Paul Seckler, a Galsit security guard that Jack had given a job to. He also happened to be a resident of the Agape Lodge. The furious Molina demands to know what happened. Seckler does his best to remember. The last thing he could recall was visiting Jack's house and being asked to take part in a peculiar ritual. The next thing he knew, he was sat behind the steering wheel of a car he didn't recognise, speeding down the road with a gun laying on the passenger seat beside him. Having tried to make his way back to Jack's house, he found the local police force waiting for him at the Colorado Bridge. A perplexed Molina is later informed by the officer in charge that a deranged Seckler had been seen running out of Parsons' house late the night before, where he threatened a young couple at gunpoint before stealing their car. When Melina confronts Jack and Ed, who had also been present, about what had happened, they refused to tell him. Melina's patience with Jack is running out, and it couldn't have come at a worst time. Prior to 1941, there were few outside of Hawaii who gave much thought for the island of Oahu, much less to the shallow bay known to islanders as Waimomi, or Waters of the Pearl. By the end of December 7th, it would be wrenched violently into the American consciousness after a surprise attack is launched by the Japanese government on the American naval base located there in Pearl Harbor. By the following day, 2,400 American military personnel were dead and the United States government had formally entered the war. Back in the Arroyo Seco, the team, spurred on by the latest developments, are making significant progress, expanding their expertise to incorporate liquid fuels, spearheaded by Martin Summerfield, a trusted friend and colleague of Frank Molina's, who had joined the team in the summer of 1940. In April 1942, four years after declaring they could do what nobody else thought possible, the group gathered in the Mojave Desert to witness two liquid-propelled rockets assist the takeoff of a hulking 14,000-pound bomber plane. As the team, led by Molina and Summerfield, celebrated with von Karman, there were two noticeable absentees, Jack and Ed. Though the pair had good reason not to be there, 
there was something symbolic in their absence. Since the beginning of the Second World War, the nature of rocket science development was rapidly changing. Due largely to Jack and Ed's pioneering work, in the days when nobody wanted anything to do with it, more and more brilliant scientists were entering the field, leaving little room for self-taught experts. It was in every way a science quickly leaving the likes of Jack Parsons and Ed Foreman behind in the glare of its afterburn. With the war effort now in full swing, the American aviation industry went into overdrive as one manufacturer after another cashed in on the war. In the next year alone, over 60,000 planes would be manufactured and bought by the United States government. Frank Molina, an avowed socialist, had always been uncomfortable with the idea of profiting from war. But not only were these extraordinary times, but even in the closeted environment of academia, he understood that if he were ever to realise his dream of taking rockets to space, compromises would have to be made. The rest of the team were in agreement, but despite everything they had achieved, they were unable to sell their JATO product to the aviation industry. Perhaps they saw it as competition for their own devices, or perhaps it was the stigma still attached to rocketry which continued to cloud the minds of the establishment as to what was and what wasn't possible. In response, the rocket research team, now officially consisting of Parsons, Foreman, Summerfield, Molina and Von Karman, started their own company. Aerojet Engineering Corporation was born. Despite the success with the liquid JATO rockets, the US Navy were unwilling to countenance anything other than a solid fuel propellant. So when the order came in for a hundred rockets, it was on Parsons to make it work. But Jack was at a dead end. No matter what he tried, he was unable to scale the rockets up to the necessary size without cracks appearing in the mix. What he needed was an impossibility a solid fuel with the properties of a liquid. After yet another explosive disaster at the Arroyo test site, a despondent Parsons takes a few moments to gather his thoughts. Wandering to the back of the site, he catches a whiff of something sweet and acrid on the warm breeze. Turning, he sees some construction workers pushing asphalt across the roof of a nearby building. He watches for a moment as they pour the gloop glinting black and gold under the sun, a solid fuel that acted like a liquid. Moments later, Jack is back in his laboratory, surrounded by billowing clouds of smoke and the sweet choke of petroleum, concocting a thick blackness from liquefied tar and potassium percolate. To enthused cries of EO Pan, he pours the resultant mix into an unused rocket casing and waits for it to set. Parsons had just created Galsit 53, the 53rd fuel mixed by the rocket research team. It was the first castable composite solid propellant ever invented. According to Frank Molina later, it was one of the most important discoveries in the long history of solid fuel rockets. It was also the last serious contribution to rocket science that Jack Parsons would ever make.
while Parsons' professional life was hitting its peak. Back at the Agape Lodge, things were threatening to unravel. In response to Jack and Betty's continuing affair, Helen sought comfort with the group's leader, Wilfred Smith. Although Jack had encouraged the union, Smith's lover, Regina Carl, had been far less sympathetic. Once again, the theory and practice of Crowley's insistence on doing what thou wilt, making for difficult bedfellows. With Parsons' reputation, however, steadily growing among the Agape Lodge members, ever the chemist, he recognised the growing discontent as a perfect opportunity for change. Buoyed by the success of Aerojet, Jack proposed that the group abandon the crumbling frames of Winona Boulevard and move the Agape Lodge to Pasadena. And so it is that on June 9th, 1942, the group, led by Jane Wolfe carrying a large portrait of Alistair Crowley, make their way through the doors of 1003 Orange Grove Avenue. The house was a significant upgrade and much more befitting for a secret magic order. Set over three floors, the property was the former residence of lumber millionaire Arthur Fleming, who as a long-standing donor to Caltech had hosted Albert Einstein, among many others, within its walls. It included a 25-acre garden with a pretty pergola and fountain that would make a perfect stage for the order's rituals. A large, ornate mahogany staircase swept into a grand entrance hall over which was placed the portrait of Alistair Crowley. A garage located a short distance from the house was promptly converted into Jack's home laboratory. Wilfred Smith, still acting as the official head of the lodge, and Helen took the master bedroom on the second floor, while Betty and Jack shared another bedroom on the same floor, installing a large statue of the great god Pan in the corner. The two couples were joined by Regina Carl and Jane Wolfe, among many others who would come and go over the next few months. By 1942, largely thanks to the charismatic Jack, 40 new members had been admitted into the Agape Lodge. But if it was order that Jack was hoping for, he would not find it here, as more and more initiates, keen to adopt the principles of Thelema, struggled with the reality of applying its teachings before the mind was ready to follow. One new member, Grady McMurty, who Jack had been introduced to earlier in the year, was particularly upset to discover his wife Claire had participated in sex magic rituals with both Smith and Parsons without his knowledge. McMurty was equally dismayed to discover that six months after the group had moved into Orange Grove, they hadn't practiced the Gnostic Mass once, and Julie informed Crowley, who in return blasted Parsons for his naivety and ordered Smith to stand down as the group's leader, blaming him for the group's lack of focus. Crowley's response is a double blow for Parsons. Not only had he upset his respected leader, who he still had high hopes of meeting in person, but the threat of losing Smith, who had become an invaluable and trusted instructor, was the last thing he had expected. By the end of 1942, rumours are swirling about just what exactly has been going on at the new Agape Lodge. And soon, there are reports of men in black suits keeping watch of the house. 
But amidst the chaos, one thing remains consistent. The magic. It had been the case for some time that science was no longer the priority for Jack. At least, not in the traditional sense. Having remained an avid fan of science and fantasy fiction over the years, one author's book in particular had awoken something in him that he had been suspecting for some time. Written by Jack Williamson, Darker Than You Think tells the story of a race of lycanthropic witches who for a long time had been forced to live in the shadows after losing an ancient war with Homo sapiens. Not until the coming of the Child of the Night will the magical race be set free to rule the Earth once more. To Jack, the book drew parallels with Crowley's own prophecy of the coming age of Horus. Unlike Crowley, however, who saw the current era of death and destruction as the period of transition from one age to the next, for Parsons it was more evidence of the continuing ills of the masculine age of Osiris. Where Crowley saw the age of Horus as a balance, it was far more important for Parsons to focus on returning the feminine to its rightful place at the top. With Jack now being treated as the de facto leader of the Lodge, it was beginning to occur to him that perhaps he was that child of the night, destined to help usher in the new age. As the ever-impatient Jack continues in his efforts to harness the power of real magic, a number of strange shapes and terrifying noises are reported at 1003 Orange County Avenue. Concerns that he is getting ahead of himself and rumours of black magic begin to circulate. Jack Williamson's book also tells of a flame-haired woman whose arrival is pivotal for the creation of the new age. Jack too will meet such a woman, but not before undertaking one of the most ambitious and infamous magical workings ever to be recorded. But there is one more ingredient required before Jack's ambitions can be fully realised. The arrival of another flame-haired individual, a master of story and the tall tale, who, going by the name of Ron, will soon cast his own particular spell on all who cross his path. Join us next Tuesday for the final instalment of Unexplained's We Are The Witchcraft. If you enjoy listening to Unexplained and would like to show your appreciation, you can now help support us by going to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are massively appreciated. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or on Twitter at unexplainedpod. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video, any time between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. 
Teladoc Therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.